Okay, uh, everyone's doing all right. I got a, uh, I got a gaggle of students up here in the top left of the balcony. How y'all doing up there? Most of them were sleeping in my basement last night, it's, I think, so um, good to see you all here. You made it up, and I'm glad you're here this morning, so good. Uh, homecoming last night at OPRF, in case you didn't know, uh, but there we go. So I uh, was not here in the flesh last week, but I was here virtually in spirit because uh, from Jerusalem, I watched the, um, the live stream on was the eight-hour time difference. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. So uh, I didn't get to see your faces, but I got to watch Pastor Eric preach. Pastor Eric, thank you for preaching and uh, the worship team here. But it's good to be back with you uh, this morning. And I was back, and I, I, my initial thought was we were just going to pick up the, the uh, 2 Corinthians uh, sermon series. But as I was working on the sermon, thinking through, praying through things, I, I decided I wanted to share a little bit about uh, the experience that uh, we had in the Middle East. And so uh, Andy Brandt, who's our elder chair, and then Nigel uh, is our intrepid uh, middle school director, and then myself, we went over uh, to the Middle East. Uh, we were in Jordan, in Amman mainly, but not just Amman. Uh, for three days, and then over in Israel uh, around Jerusalem uh, for three days. And uh, we were over there. Uh, many of you may not know, some of you might know, but we have um, some ministry partners over there in the Middle East. Uh, last, I think it was last missions month or a couple missions uh, months ago, uh, we are, our speakers uh, were from some of our ministry partners there. This coming missions month in November, we have Pastor Afif who will be coming, and he's uh, from uh, over in the Middle East there. So we've had some connections over there, but we're looking to expand those connections and figure out ways that we as a church and congregants can get involved in ministry over there. And so we were over there, uh, and then Pastor Johnny uh, Christie and Pastor Greg will be over in um, North Africa and uh, Egypt area in December, also doing some exploratory work. And so just be prayerful for us as we continue uh, to partner with folks over there that uh, the Lord would make ways for us as congregants to be able to partner uh, over there as well. So that's what we were doing. We were exploring uh, and connecting with different ministry partners over there in the Middle East. And I pulled together in my mind sort of uh, three vignettes or uh, moments there in the Middle East where I was reminded of what God is doing there and what God has been teaching us here. And so I want to pull together kind of these three scenes or these three moments uh, from our trip there in the Middle East um, and then have the Lord speak uh, into our lives with that. I'm going to look at three different passages of Scripture. You don't need to turn there. Uh, I'll just read them quickly and then uh, use that as the way into uh, the, the vignette that we'll talk about from the Middle East. But um, the first one comes from Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. Welcome to turn there if you want, but Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus uh, is going through all the cities and villages, teaching the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And then I, this is the verse that, that stands out to me here in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
And here we have this passage where Jesus is doing, as it were, evangelistic ministry and uh, encouraging his disciples to pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest fields, which are ripe for harvest. And when we were over there in the Middle East, all of the ministries that we were connecting with, we connected with four different ministries. All of them were focused on evangelism. And uh, evangelism in the Middle East can be a bit of a tricky thing. It's not a problem in most areas of the Middle East to be a Christian. That's okay. Christianity has been around for a long time. The problem comes around conversion. And so if I come from a Christian family and my family is historically Christian, uh, that, that's okay, right? But I can't try to convert you as a Muslim into Christianity. That, that will get into problems. And if you're a Muslim and you're interested in converting to Christianity, you can't convert to Christianity either. So everyone just kind of has to stay in their lane uh, in the Middle East. And that was true where we were in Jordan and then also uh, in uh, the uh, Palestinian parts of Israel uh, where we were. So you can be a Christian, but you can't convert. That's the trick. So evangelism is a little tricky, as you can imagine, in the Middle East and for these ministries that are doing evangelism. And so I was really paying attention to and struck by the way that they do evangelism in the Middle East. And you might, you might imagine that uh, in that kind of closed context where evangelism is not, pros- not possible, it would be kind of very bold kind of brave evangelistic policies, and, and, uh, and it's not really quite so much that. The primary evangelistic strategy of the ministries there in the Middle East is love. That's the primary evangelistic strategy. And uh, they, the ministries that we talked to worked with refugees. They worked with uh, the poor and kind of the down and out in some of the, of the areas. And they would simply present themselves to communities as Christians. And they would say, hey, we're Christians. Part of our Christian religion is our God tells us that we should love our neighbor. Jesus tells us that we should love our neighbor. And so we want to just, just be faithful to our faith, and we want to love our neighbor. And so we're here to, to bring the love of God. And so is there anyone in this community that really could benefit from our uh, tangible love and we want to help in, in tangible ways bringing, you know, care packages and these sorts of things. And so the, the communities would then give them names of folks that they could visit with, that they could bring uh, the exercise of their religion, which is love for others in that context. And so there's very open and honest and, uh, and then they would come into these homes and they would sit down with whether it was a, a nominal Christian family or a Muslim family. Uh, we visited both homes and kinds of homes and uh, they would sit down and they would bring care packages. And so it'd be kind of very practical things that were needed for the folks uh, that were um, more poor. They would offer to pray for them and their families they would just sit and listen and let the folks talk about their lives and what their situation is. And they would visit regularly. So once a week they would come and each week they would come and they would bring the love of Christ each week in those moments. And they would do that often enough that invariably there would be folks that would, would begin to question, like, why have you uh, come? Why do you, what is it about your faith or what is Jesus or who is Jesus? And answering questions is not necessarily going to get you into trouble as a Christian in the Middle East. You can answer questions, but trying to convert, that's where the problem is. But they would simply love people 
and they would answer questions. And that's like 98% of evangelism is loving people and answering their questions about Jesus. So I was thinking to myself, like, man, it's so difficult over there in the Middle East not being able to do evangelism. All you can do is love. But that is evangelism. That is what evangelism is. And one of the gentlemen that we were talking to who runs, he's an Israeli, Egyptian-born Israeli that does ministry in the Palestinian area, Arabs, or, uh, areas. So how you put those all together, his, his uh, mother was a Assemblies of God pastor's kid, and his father was a deacon in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So I just love that. He's, he's Egyptian-born, Assemblies of God, Protestant on one side, Orthodox on the other side, doing, he's an Israeli, Israeli citizen doing ministry in the Palestine. I mean, it's beautiful. It was just beautiful. But they do ministry uh, for kids, and they bring kids in, and, and uh, you know, with the refugees, the way you love is you bring care packages. Well, with students or kids who are 10, 12, 15, 16, like you don't bring care packages, what do you do? They just, they just play with the kids, right? They meet the kids where the kids are at, and they, that's how they love. Because how do you spell love to a 12-year-old? It's spelled F-U-N, right? That's how you spell love, right? So they would just play with the kids. And, and uh, he said, you know, we, we, we talk to them about Bible stories if they ask questions, and as we can and as are able to, but... Um, it says, and they ask questions of us, but uh, if they remember one thing from their time with us, we want them to remember that God loves them and that we love them. That's what we want them to remember. And so even if they don't stay with us and they kind of wander out, that, like, that their impression of Christians is that they have a God who loves and that they love. And that's what we want to give to the folks that come in. So they're doing it with the refugees and they're doing it with the kids and with everyone they meet that God loves and that they love. And I think that's such a good lesson for evangelism, not just in the Middle East, but everywhere. So whether it's here in Oak Park, whether it's in OPRF in the high schools, whether it's with the parents, whether it's in the Austin neighborhood or River Forest or Galewood or Berwyn or wherever it is, right? This is the heartbeat of what it is to bring the love of God and the message of the gospel. Jesus, we read in our passage here, he sees the crowd and he has compassion. Because if we don't bring love with the message of the gospel, well, then the gospel is never heard. And so we need to lead with love. And in thinking about what loving others involves and thinking about what I saw there in the Middle East, certainly... Love involves compassion, and we saw that in the ministry that these uh, uh, folks had to the refugees and to those more in the poor, com poor community. But, but it, particularly as it relates to the kids, it also involves genuine liking. You have to like the people that you are preaching the gospel to. And with these kids, they didn't need tangible food items. What they needed was to be liked. They just needed someone to love them and care for them. And I was thinking about that. That really just uh, stuck out to me. And thinking about um, it's hard sometimes to like the lost. Because the lost, in so many ways, particularly like when you get in the polarized context that we have here in the States of kind of an us versus them. I mean, you think this is polarized. Think about living in the Middle East with an us versus them sort of polarized context, 
right? And it's easy to look at those outside the Christian faith as sort of other and the enemy and the antagon, the, the, uh, with antagonism, right? But in this, these gospel interactions that we were experiencing, there was genuine liking. And we have to like the people that we are bringing the gospel to. And I just think that's a true word for us as well, that we don't get pulled into all the fractured political acrimony that permeates our culture. And we don't adopt an aggressive us-then posture that prevents us from liking people who don't agree with us, liking people who perhaps even view our faith as objectionable. But nonetheless, love, when it flowers up into its fullness, is like. It's like. And we can't just simply love people without liking them. We can't like people without loving them. But love manifests itself as like, like as liking. And the last thing I saw there too, I think this is true, it kind of keeps with both of those things, that there's a no strings attached friendship posture that these ministries had with the folks that they were ministering to. It wasn't here, but we're going to bring you this care package and then uh, as long as you convert. So we're going to bring you this care package. And uh, whether you're interested in asking us questions about Jesus or not, whether you want to talk about Jesus or not, we're here to love you and to bring you this care package. And that's how it is. Uh, with the evangelism over there in the Middle East. There's this love as the primary evangelistic strategy, unconditional love. The other thing that I uh, saw over there um, reminded me of many of the things that we've been talking about here in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, end of 3, beginning of 4 in particular, uh, with seeing the face of Jesus. And the principle that I kind of jot, jotted down here is that the face of Jesus is enough. The face of Jesus is enough in both the Middle East and here in Oak Park. All we need is the face of Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 10, this is a, a passage we preached a number of, of weeks ago. But one of my just favorite verses uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. As I mentioned already, uh, conversion is the sticky wicket in the Middle East, not necessarily just being a Christian. Christianity has been in the Middle East for, I mean, for, since the beginning, right? Uh, but the, the, um, uh, the presence and depth of Christianity has been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's conversion that is the trick in the Middle East. And it's not just a trick because of how it impacts me. So if I'm a, I come from a Muslim family in the Middle East and then I want to convert to Christianity, that's going to have consequences for me. But where it's tricky is it's also going to have consequences for my family. It's a high honor shame community. And one of the gentlemen there was explaining this to us. And he says, when a Muslim man or a woman converts to Christianity, 
He not only brings shame or or she only brings shame upon herself, but he also brings shame upon his entire family. So if a young man converts to Christianity, now his sisters can't get married anymore because no one will want to marry the family of an apostate. And his father loses his business connections because no one wants to do business with the family of an apostate. And his mother loses her friend's connections. Right? So he doesn't just compromise his own standing in the community, but he compromises his entire family's standing in the community. And then he said, now the way that a family can sort of reclaim their honor if a son or a daughter converts to Christianity is they treat the, 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 the apostate child very harshly, maybe even killing, but certainly ostracizing, kicking out of the home, doing away with. Because then when the community sees that they've treated the apostate so severely, that regains some of their honor. So there's high stakes involved in conversion there in the Middle East. I was asking uh, this gentleman that uh, does ministry down in the Palestinian areas, uh, as they minister with folks, um, how do they navigate or move towards baptism? He said, well, we let them move towards that at their own pace. And he said, we don't pressure them towards baptism. And he said, to be honest with you, we don't pressure them towards baptism because we don't want them to die. Like we've really developed a love relationship with them. And we know that when they get baptized, that could be the end of their lives. And so he's like, we just let the Lord lead them in that, in that process. So the high, the stakes are high there uh, in the Middle East. And um, so hold on to that as a kind of a placeholder there. There's another element too. Um, there are different, particularly when we were in Israel, we were uh, interacting uh, with this ministry that was in the Palestinian areas of Israel. And there are three different kinds of Palestinian areas is how he explained it to us. There's A, B, and C areas. So in the A areas, it's uh, completely run by the Palestinians. Uh, Palestinians provide their own security and provide their own infrastructure, and the Israelis stay entirely out. So that would be like the Gaza Strip, where Hamas is. And so this is a place, he said, we're not not able to go in any way. We can't get into into the A areas, the Palestinian areas. Then there are B areas, and the B areas are where the Israelis provide the security and some of the infrastructure things, but it's administered by the Palestinians. So these are the B areas, so this is like Bethlehem. And then there are C areas, where in the C areas, the uh, Israelis provide the security and the infrastructure, um, and they also uh, provide the um, kind of the, the, the civil uh, leadership as well. And the Palestinians and the Israelis live uh, in those communities together. And so as we were talking about evangelism in uh, the Palestinian areas, areas, he said that the thing that's notable uh, is that most of the conversions that we are seeing are coming out of the A areas. They're coming out of places like Gaza. And he says, uh, what often happens is folks, and it's tricky in Gaza, right? Because if you're a Muslim and you're interested in converting, you can't talk to Muslims, but you also can't talk to the Christians because the Christians don't want to talk to you. Because if the Christians get caught talking to you and you convert, that gets them in trouble. So the, you, if you're interested in converting, it's very hard to find anyone even to talk to in the Gaza Strip. He says, but what ends up happening is they will often have a vision or a dream of Jesus. And they know about Jesus because Jesus is one of the, is one of the uh, Islamic prophets. 
And so they have this vision of Jesus. They want to know more about him. They can't find anyone to talk to. They go online. Eventually, that leads them to this ministry that's working there out of Israel. And uh, then that leads to phone numbers. And then they, they lead uh, people to the Lord over the phone and do discipleship over the phone. So he said, but most of these, a lot of these conversions are happening in places like the Gaza Strip. So now I've heard, maybe you've heard stories too about how the Lord is uh, making himself known through visions and dreams over in the Middle East. I've, I've heard that before. Uh, and so that was fun to hear that kind of in the Middle East. But then we were at uh, one of these ministry centers and we met a man from the Gaza Strip who had been converted in this way. And so I want to tell you his story. Um, and I've changed his name uh, because he is still in a Palestinian area and he got out of the A area to the B area, but he's still wanted by the Palestinian authorities. I doubt that the Palestinian authorities are watching Calvary's live feed this morning, but just on the off chance, uh, I've changed his name and some of the details. Um, but this is the story of a, a man named Will that we met and uh, as soon as he heard that we were Christians from the States, he just immediately like went into this story. He was just like, he couldn't help himself wanting to tell it. And uh, I came just a few, I was finishing up another conversation and I came a few minutes late to this conversation with Will. And so I might've missed a few things at the beginning, but you won't know because you weren't there either. And so I'll just make it up and we'll all be fine. Right. But from what I gathered, um, he had a government job and uh, became aware of some corruption uh, in uh, the, uh, the government job that he was working for. Somehow he was arrested and tortured. And he wasn't a Christian at this point. But uh, the authorities uh, were really putting the screws to him. He had a, all of his teeth knocked out. It was a pretty dramatic story, frankly. But he was very interested in Christianity, but he wasn't a Christian. He wanted to know more about Jesus. And uh, there was an earthquake. I mean, this sounds like something right out of the book of Acts. There was an earthquake, and he was able to escape his, uh, his authorities uh, during the earthquake. And so he then was able to flee to a friend uh, who, where he was able to hide out for six months. And this was still in one of the A areas. And so his friend, it sounds like he built a fake wall that... Uh, that Will was able to hide behind. So it's kind of like a diary of Anne Frank sort of situation. And it was this fake wall. It sounded like it was about, he described it as probably about a four or five foot wide, about 10 feet long and uh, no windows, completely closed in. It had a little like fake window picture thing up at the top that could be taken down and they would pass food uh, through the wall. And so uh, Will is back in this uh, room uh, for six months never left, didn't see the sun for six months. And he's hiding uh, for his life. He began to get very weak, as you would imagine, living in such an enclosed space with no daylight, uh, began to get very weak, sick. He was losing weight. His hair was starting to fall out because he was getting a vitamin D deficiency. And he spent his time uh, back behind that wall. He had internet access and he was desperately trying to find information about Jesus. And he got online and was connected with what he thought was a Christian ministry uh, that began to, to interact with him and to teach him about who Jesus was and various aspects of the Bible. But then as it progressed, it turned out 
uh, to be a cult. And the conclusion, they, they said to him, Will, you've been so faithful. You've, you've listened to everything we've said. Now we have the secret information to give you. And the truth is uh, you need to go to North Africa because Jesus has come again and he's uh, incarnated himself again as an Egyptian woman. And if you go to Africa, you're going to be able to find her and then we'll tell you what to do next. And he was immediately solid as a farce, and he, but he was so disillusioned. He was in despair from having been in this uh, room for six months. He hasn't seen his family uh, for four years from the time that we saw him. And he had a wife and a little kid. And, and, uh, and he tried so hard to find out who Jesus was. And that's what he found out. That, that Jesus is some Egyptian woman in North Africa. And he's like, this whole thing is bunk. There is no Jesus. He's like, there is no God. Everything's a lie whole life is a lie. He had no hope. And he said, he decided he, in the morning he was going to just turn himself into the authorities and let them do what he wanted, what they wanted to with him because he was at the end of himself. But then in that moment, in the midst of his darkness and despair there in his little secret room, he says he saw the most beautiful face. And then he, he like paused and he was like, I can't describe it. He said, but the face, like it was so beautiful. Authority kept using, beautiful. And he said there was such peace and such joy and such love. And then he said that the face said to him, I am the one that you're looking for. And he immediately, he said, I went crazy. And I began to pound on the wall. And, he, and they, they, the people he was staying with came and told, told him to be quiet. Be quiet, be quiet. You're going to give yourself away. He said, I don't care. I've seen God. I've seen God. Then he said, get me a priest. Because he's been wanting to talk to some Christian for so long to find out more about Jesus. And he said, get me a priest. And he began making such a fuss that the folks he was hiding with like went and found some Christian priest somewhere and brought him over to him so that he could kind of calm the guy down. And uh, the priest said, yes, I think you've seen Jesus. And he was so moved by that. And when we met him, he had gotten out of the hiding. He had gotten out of uh, the, the Palestinian A area to a B area. And now he was a little bit more safe, but he was still uh, had a death warrant on his head and was still hiding out from the authorities. But he was so full of joy. He still hadn't seen his family, was back in the A area uh, and um, wasn't sure whether he would see them again. Uh, but he had been connected with the United Nations and they were going to try to get him out of Israel and the Palestinian areas over into the States and then work to get his family out. So um, as you think of it, you can pray for Will. That's not his real name, but God knows his real name. So you don't have to worry about it. But you can pray for Will and his family that they're able to get out. But he was so overcome because he had seen the face of Jesus in the darkness of his despair. And... You know, that's a crazy story, right? That's a crazy story for us. But I was back and I, John and I, Pastor John and I were going to lunch and I was telling John the story and I realized this is the same story that PJ told us two weeks ago. It's the same story, right? Even the hair falling out and being sick, right? That in the darkness of our despair, Jesus meets us and reveals himself to us in extraordinary ways. And I loved the time that I had uh, over there in Israel. Truly, I, I did. It was a great trip. But as I worshiped and prayed and talked to the folks there, 
I realized it became apparent to me that there was nothing there in the Middle East that I have not encountered here in Oak Park. Because the Jesus that appears to the folks in visions and dreams in the Middle East is the Jesus that appears to us here in Oak Park. And the love that they experience over in the Middle East is the same love that we experience here in Oak Park. And this is the whole point of what I think the Apostle Paul is teaching us in 2 Corinthians. That the face of Jesus is enough. That even when life isn't sorted out, when everything hasn't been worked out in all of its details, even when we're still hiding out from the Palestinian authorities or we still have cancer, when Jesus appears to us, it's enough because his face is the embodiment of peace and love and beauty and kindness and the nearness of God. So, so the face of Jesus is enough in the Middle East and in Oak Park. That was another thing that I really was struck by over there. My third vignette comes from 1 John four nineteen. Just one verse, quick sentence. We love because he first loved us. And here's the principle uh, that kind of rested home with me in a fresh and new way. We love God with God's love. The love with which we love God is the love with which God loves us. So we worshiped in an Anglican church the Sunday that we left to come home. It was this beautiful 200-year-old Anglican church now, if you've ever been over to Israel, you know that 200 years old is just a wee little guy, you know? I mean, uh, over there in Israel, like everything you walk past, it's like, you know, that's 700 years old. That's 1,400 years old. That's from the time of Moses. I mean, it's just all so old, you know? And uh, so 200-year-old Anglican church is just a little upstart, you know, over there. But it was in the old city. It was in an old building. It was just beautiful. And and it was the morning that we were going to leave. And... Uh, as, oh, this is a little funny side note, but as we're walking in, the pastor is there and he's greeting people as they walk in and he could tell we were from out of town. And, uh, and uh, I, Andy's so tall, you know, I'm so white. <laughs> Nigel's so black. I mean, we just don't look like we're from around there, you know. And, uh, and so we come in and clearly we're from out of town. And he said, uh, where are you from? We said Chicago. And he goes, oh, I know Chicago. What part of Chicago? We said Oak Park, because, you know, who's heard of Oak Park? He said, oh, I know Oak Park. He said, uh, what church are you in? We said Calvary. And he goes, I've preached at Calvary Memorial Church. I said, oh, well, how about that? So back in Pastor Ray's day in the late 90s, uh, he had come and he had done some preaching here at Calvary. So it was fun to make that connection all the way on the other side of the world. But the service begins, and uh, we sang a few songs, uh, one I recognized, one I didn't recognize, um, and both the songs were about God, about his majesty, about his holiness, and uh, at the time, I wasn't feeling anything in particular, and that's okay. I don't try to, like, manufacture emotions when I'm in a worship service, and sometimes they're there, and sometimes they're not. It was the end of a long week. And uh, we were all feeling pretty toasted and had a long day of travel ahead of us. And so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't feeling particularly anything in the moment, but I was just enjoying the moment. But then we sang a song about the love that God has for us. And suddenly I was moved to tears. And I don't even remember what the song was, but, but in that moment to be reminded that God loves me and he cares for me, and he sees me, that's our comfort and our hope. That's the whole shooting match. And from that moment on in the service, 
I felt my own love for God well up inside of me. And it was a reminder to me that in the Christian life, we always have to begin with God's love for us. And then we can move towards returning God's love back to him. We can get so fixated on the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, that's like it, love your neighbor as yourself, that we can forget that the capacity to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and the capacity to love others as we love ourselves is because God has first poured out his love into our lives. And so only to the degree that we experience and grab on and lay hold of the love of God do we have any love to give to God or to others. Because we as human beings are not love factories. We can't generate love. We are put into the world and we, we can maybe... Uh, we, we, we can't, maybe here's an analogy, we can't produce vitamin D without the sunshine, right? Like we can't produce love without the sun of God pouring down into our lives, right? And so we have no love to give except that God pours out his love into us because all love is from God because God is love. And if we don't open ourselves up to receive God's love for us, then what do we have to give back to him? We have nothing to give back to him. So our encounters of worship with God are contingent upon us remembering and receiving God's love for us. So don't dismiss or skip past God's personal love for you. Not for you, Calvary, but for you. You, personally, your name. Like he loves you. And if you skip past that or you think of it as trite, or self-absorbed, or you think, well, that's an immature, limited focus. You're not going to be able to love God because it's God's love in you that allows you to love God in return. The love of God for us poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit is the very same love with which we love God in return. So don't get ahead of yourself trying so hard to love God. Focus your attention on receiving God's love. And then what you find is that loving God in return and loving others just kind of takes care of itself. Because when you are filled up with the love of God, it just radiates out of you back to God and to others. We love because he first loved us. And that was the thing that I encountered and reminded of in a fresh way there that Sunday morning. Well, this last uh, vignette is going to be for communion and uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1, maybe is our jumping off text, but Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'm going to hang, move down here to our communion table. Uh, as I talk about this last vignette, but if you've ever been to an Anglican service, uh, you'll know that um, very frequently uh, they do communion. Most churches, at least around this neck of the woods, will do communion uh, every week, every Sunday morning. And um, so we did communion then, uh, that Sunday morning. And one of the things that you'll often hear in an Anglican church uh, during communion is the, the pastor or the priest will, 
we'll hold up the elements and we'll say the gifts of God for the people of God. I think I've said that a few times uh, here as well. I think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful statement. Um, the gifts of God for the people of God. That's what communion is. In our tradition, um, we emphasize uh, communion, the communion elements as signs and the idea of communion as a sign and communion as a gift. They're not against each other and they actually go together uh, very well. But in the older Christian traditions, communion is viewed as a gift. It's the chief blessing that God has given to his people to signify our share in his divine life. But in these older traditions, communion is thought of not just as a gift from God to God's people, but it's also thought of as a gift given back to God by God's people. Not a gift that's just received from God, but a gift, communion itself is a gift given back to God. The bread and the cup are received from God and then given back to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now think with me for a moment about what it means to give the gift of Christ back to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I mean, what does that look like? We might think it would mean, when we think about giving God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, we might conjure up pictures in the Old Testament. That wouldn't be wrong. But we might think about throwing the elements on an altar or burning them up in some way. Because isn't that what was done with the sacrifices in the Old Testament? You would bring the sacrifice to the temple and you would give the sacrifice to God and the sacrifice would be burned up. Yes, but in the Old Testament, there was another kind of sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 14. And in the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the Jewish worshipers would bring their gifts and sacrifices to the temple to give to the Lord as a sign of their gratitude. So they had worked uh, all year. They had brought in the harvest or the grain or the, the, the fat of the lamb or whatever it would be, right? And, and God had blessed them, had given to them. And so then they would take some of what God had given to them and they would bring it to give it back to the Lord. But what would they do when they got to the temple in Jerusalem to give it back to the Lord? Do you know what they would do? As a way of giving the sacrifice back to the Lord, they would eat it. They would have a feast. They would bring their sacrifice, their tithe, their thanksgiving tithe to the Lord. They would bless the Lord for having given all this to them. And then they would offer it back to the Lord by eating it. Which is a fascinating thought and it forms the backdrop of New Testament communion. We give the gift of God back to God by eating it. But what is that about? How are we giving the gift that God has given to us back to God by eating it? What it means is that Christ is given back to God in us. And this is why we are exhorted to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. 
as we partake of the supper and then we offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices, we are fulfilling the whole purpose of communion, the whole purpose of redemption. God gives himself to us so that we can fill ourselves up with Christ, our Christ-saturated lives. And then we offer our whole lives back to God. This is how we give Christ back to God. We give Christ to God as we offer ourselves to God. But not just our old carnal natural selves. There's no Christ life in the old natural carnal self. There's nothing there to give to God. But when we come to God and he fills us up with himself, when he pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, when we become one with Christ and his life is inside of us, when we are like a sponge that has soaked up the life of Christ, now we come back to God and we give to God Christ back to him who gave Christ to us in our lives. In Christ, we become a gift truly worthy of God. You ever think about that for a moment? What do we have to give God that God needs? When your four-year-old gives you a gift, what, what do they have to give you that you need? They make their nice pencil, crayon drawings, and we receive them in love, and it's kind, but we don't really need it. It's only meritorious because we love them. But to give Christ to God, to give Christ to God, this is something that God values, not just because he loves us, oh, so cute, but because he values eternally his son. We have been given the opportunity to give Christ back to God, to give the son back to the father. And this is what communion is, this great narrative, this great sign that we receive the life of Christ. We take him inside of us and then we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, bringing Christ back to God. Augustine, he says this, and this also is the sacrifice which the church continually celebrates in the sacrament on the altar known to the faithful in which she teaches that she herself is offered in the offering that she makes to God. God has given us such a great gift that we can actually bless God because we can give him himself back in ourselves. Such a privilege. We proclaim the Lord's death, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 26. We proclaim the Lord's death every time we come together and take of the supper. And we proclaim his death in communion insofar as we fill ourselves up with Christ and offer our bodies and our whole lives back to the Lord.